Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the two-year anniversary of this show. So, boom, bam. Two years. I'll take that. That works for me. And I'll tell you what, I want to take the opportunity to just say thank you for listening. I hope that you've learned something. I certainly have learned a lot. I'm continuing to learn a lot. Uh, the listeners of this show who have emailed me and communicated with me and been guests on the show have taught me a great deal about what's going on both in their lives and in their areas where they live. And uh, a lot of shared experiences, to say the least, because again, we are all in this war. There is no doubt about it, and the war continues. So thank you for listening, regardless of when you decided to pick up this show. If you continue to listen, I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm not going to stop with this show. I think it's important. Um, I'm not saying that it's the greatest podcast on the face of the planet. I would never, I would never make make that claim, not by a long shot, but uh, I do my best to try to stay ahead of the curve as much as I can. And there have been some moments throughout the time when I've noticed that that's the case. So I have you to thank for that, of course, for listening. And again, I appreciate the feedback, the positive emails, the comments, all of it. I really do enjoy it and uh, keep them coming, to say the least. Because I'd love to read your emails again and your experiences and the particular things that you're witnessing out there and, and what's going on in your areas as well. So the major reason, again, too, that I wanted to have this show was because I thought that there was a, a need for it. I thought that there was an area in the field of education that needed to be filled where the truth had to be told. And who better to do it than a whistleblower who's been in the ringer? through two state departments of education and seen the corruption through and through for a very long time. Not to mention the outside influence and the political influence and geopolitical influence that exists within the field of education. And as you might expect, that right there defines why the education system has to collapse. And it cannot be rebuilt the way that, uh, the way that it currently is now. It has to be void of endless things. But as you've heard me say, there's no way that that can even happen because of the political influence and the laws that have been written regarding American education. There are too many laws. And so the only way to actually make it collapse and make those laws completely dissolve or evaporate into thin air is by walking away from the business completely. And there is an interesting trend that is occurring, in particular in the area of YouTube, which I'm not a fan of, which is why this show doesn't exist on YouTube, and it never will as far as I'm concerned. But there are numerous videos out there that exist on YouTube of teachers talking about quitting and why they're quitting and why they're leaving the business and have left the business, along with, of course, endless school board videos that exist of educators complaining about the business and talking about being mistreated, and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think that that's a good thing. I think that that's helping wake people up. I would take it a step further, and I would say that a lot of those videos, certainly the, I don't want to call them self-promotional, but, but the ones where it, it's an individual talking about their individual experience, I'm, I'm certain that there are people out there that empathize with their experiences, but I don't think that they even go deep enough into the corruption and the real problems because they may not know. I mean, they may just be starting to wake up. 
And one of the more dangerous things I think that exists in a positive way is the teacher who leaves the profession completely because that's a person who is waking up or has already woken up and now their journey of awakening is just going to continue. So that's my two cents on that. Again, there are positives that are coming out of this, I think. You've taught me, again, a great deal of information. I hope that you've learned something from from listening to this. Again, whether it be the audio I've shared, some of the texts that I've, that, that I've read, the stories I've brought up, things of that nature, and, and hopefully the dots that I've connected and some of the predictions that have been made that have come true for, for one reason or another. So I hope you keep listening. I hope you share the podcast wherever you can. And that's the plan going forward. I'm, I'm not going to stop with this because I don't want to stop with this. I think it's too important. And again, as you might expect, uh, I, I know a lot of people comment on the field of education having never been in the business themselves. But uh, you know th- that's fine and dandy, and I don't have a problem necessarily with people who do that. But I assure you that you know if I wanted to know about the ins and outs of a profession, I would want to talk to somebody who's been in that profession before. Not to mention, of course, the corruption that exists throughout this profession and how that ties into endless other professions. Again, whether it be the political profession, so to speak, or the medical profession, it's all connected. And it's all connected in very, very nefarious ways. And I've done whatever I can to bring that up, of course, including things like the FBI and the CIA. I mean, Uvalde, Texas itself was was a perfect example of how you can take endless avenues of corruption and throw it all together into to one giant thing. In fact, I'll mention this right off the top real quick before I get into what I have planned for this show. And I have a lot of things planned for this one and a lot of audio that I want to play too and, and a lot of discussions that sort of highlight the bigger problem. I had a dream last night that was a fun dream. It was a dream that... Um, it was just one of those dreams that I just really enjoy. And it's a dream that a person who's not afraid of social confrontation would, would really, again, want to relive, basically. I was sitting in this garage before what ended up being a giant school board meeting. And I was sitting inside of this garage. And uh, there were a bunch of parents just sitting in chairs and we were all waiting around and whatever else. And I was there too, of course. and. Uh, they, they were, we were basically all waiting for a bus to show up to take us to this giant sort of theater, theater room where we would then listen to school board members talk about the current state of affairs and what was going on and whatever. And of course, there was a public comment section that, that later took place as well. But there was a moment in the dream, and I'm just going to mention this particular moment because this is what mattered, but we were sitting in the garage and there was a parent who brought up Uvalde. And they said something like, oh, Uvalde was just terrible. The Uvalde shooting was just horrible. I just don't want that to happen here. And I, and I turned around and I smiled and I looked at them and they kind of all looked at me. And I looked back at them and I said, you know, that didn't happen, right? And then the looks on their faces were, well, what are you talking about? And then I just went into it and I started to explain it to them. Those right there are some of the best dreams that that I have. And it's basically where I think I have the answer or I know I have the answer and then I share the answer with people who don't know. And then you get to look 
at their face and see exactly what it is that they're thinking about what's going on. And then you're basically shattering their perceived reality and shaking it to the core. And when I remember in the dream when I said that, uh, there were there may have been one person that started to ask me questions about it, and they were saying, "Well, you know, tell me more about it." And even though there were people in the room who didn't want to hear what I had to say, they were still looking at me, and they were still wanting to hear what what was going to come out of my mouth next. And I remember saying this, which is hilarious. I remember looking at the person who asked the question, and I just asked them a question back. I said, did you see any dead bodies? And they went, no. I said, did you see any blood? And they went, no. And I said, well, where, well what did you see then? And they said, well, it was on television. And I said, exactly. It was on TV. I said, just because it's on TV doesn't mean it's real. I said, you have no idea how deep the evil goes, and you have no idea how deep the corruption goes and what all of those people are willing to do to lie about a situation to the public. You have no idea. And then that was it. We got on the buses. We you know, went to this meeting, and then I kind of woke up after that. I yelled at a few people in the meeting, which was kind of fun. Even had a couple of I I personally even called the police and had a couple of people removed because they were being remarkably disruptive or whatever. But anyway, it was it was kind of a nice dream. I I sort of enjoy those social confrontation dreams and certainly the ones where I feel like I have some information to share to people when when they might not know something or might might be unaware. And again, I I enjoy in those dreams too when people share information with me and even in reality, of course. So there's that. I just wanted to mention that because, again, I, I sort of view this show just like that. I view the show as sort of a, a, a nice, quiet back and forth as, as best we can to try to get the truth out there to as many people as humanly possible and, and wake some people up so that they walk away from this corrupt and evil business that is American education and certainly the brick-and-mortar K-12 system, without a doubt. Because uh, there's a lot of bad things coming for the education business, and the individuals inside who are running it have no idea. They absolutely have no idea what's coming. So, with that said, here's what I have for this episode. A number of education stories, plenty of audio, and uh, a, a few things actually right off the bat. There was a, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll mention this first, and then the one thing that I want to end the show with is a quick little story about my dog and uh, and having her spayed that I think connects to many of us, in particular when it comes to walking into a a building like a vet's office and you don't know how you're going to be treated and what questions are going to be asked and, and what's going to be pushed on you or pushed even on your dog. Uh, and trust me, it, I think it is something that many of us share, and perhaps even a uh, sort of an emotional standpoint, so to speak, that, that a lot of us, as far as our mind frame is concerned, that, that we've all had to some extent. And it ties in, believe me, into everything that's gone on over the last two years and whatever. So certainly stick around for, for uh, the end of this episode regarding that story. Okay. Here's the first thing, and, and not necessarily education-related, although I think it's very telling. It's sad, 
uh, but but it's telling nonetheless. You may be familiar with J.J. Watt, the NFL football player. I don't watch sports anymore, but I know who he is. I didn't even know that he plays for the uh, Arizona Cardinals. That'll tell you how far removed from sports I am. But um, I remember when he played for the Texans. Anywho, apparently last Wednesday, uh, his heart started to quit or he had an irregular heartbeat. So he was diagnosed with AFib, atrial fibrillation. And then his heart was allegedly shocked back into some sort of normal heart rate, so to speak. He claims to have met with a bunch of doctors and then said he was going to play during Sunday's game, which apparently he did. He gave a press conference then, of course, after the game, and he got emotional about what was going on with him and what was happening. He mentioned that he has a newborn or not a newborn baby, but a baby on the way, so to speak, with he and his wife. And um, he he mentioned something again that sort of proves my point, and and, and is certainly something that I've brought up in the past, which is the one-dimensional outlook that a lot of people have regarding themselves. And he openly stated, he said, look, I've, I've played football my whole life. You know, he actually said, this is all I know. That's what he said which isn't true. I'm sure he knows lots of things. He's certainly been a philanthropist to some extent. He's helped a great deal of people with charity. And so it's, football isn't the only thing he knows. But what you were watching, if anybody saw that, that brief press conference, is that uh, you're watching an individual come face to face with their mortality. I'm assuming that J.J. Watt is jabbed. I'm assuming he took the shots. Again, that's an assumption. I know that there is this thing that exists out there where people will call uh, the athletic individuals and the people who exercise and work out a lot, they'll basically say that if they have any heart trouble, it's sort of referred to as athletic growth, which implies that individuals who are bigger, who again are more athletic, uh, and because they exercise or take supplements, that they have a bit of a larger heart physically and physiologically or anatomically as opposed to someone who doesn't do those things. Um, I think that's a bit dismissive of potentially the larger problem. I'm not even saying that's a real thing. I don't even know if it is or not. I know it's been used as an excuse in the past for people who have serious heart problems. But if I was J.J. Watt, which I'm not, but if I was a multimillionaire like he is, I'd hang it up. I would hang it up. I would go home. I'd spend time with my wife. I'd make sure that uh, the birth was hopefully as successful as it could be. I'd be there for the entire thing, and I would raise my child and get as much time with your family in as you possibly can. The reason I'm mentioning this is this is the very thing that you've heard me bring up on this show that people aren't going to be able to hide from the consequences of these shots. and. They can, again, the media can cover it up as much as they want. They can juke and jive and, you know, dodge as many of these particular stories as, uh, as they think that they can, but common sense is eventually going to win the day, and common sense eventually is going to take over, and the people that are going to be falling ill as a result of this, they're going to all have something in common, and it's not that they're all athletes, and it's not that they're all strong or they have an unusually large heart. That's not it. 
it's going to be because they probably took these shots. So I'm not making fun of the people that took the shots. That's not what I'm doing. They've been brainwashed. They've been coerced. Um, all a person, again, has to do is look at Kyrie Irving as the example. I mean, Kyrie Irving walked away from the NBA, refused to play because of all of the shot mandates that were in place and the mask-wearing mandates and all of it. And he's openly talked to the media about why he didn't do it. And he said it was because of his own health, for his own health. He, he knows what's going on. It's for the health of he and his family. This is an individual, again, who works inside of the machine and yet knows what's going on, just like Aaron Rodgers, quarterback for the, uh, for the Packers. Same thing. You can't listen to him talk about these shots as a shot recipient yourself and not start to question things. In particular, when you start to have health effects that are directly associated with the shots or have been mentioned as being in association with the shots. There's just no way. You can't avoid that. And this is, again, this is why this isn't going to be hidden. People can try to hide it all they like, but uh, I think God has another plan, and it's to wake everybody up to what's going on, either the easy way or the hard way. And that's just going to be something that continues to happen. So, you know, I pray for him and everybody else who's unfortunately fallen for this horrible trick, uh, this devilish scheme, so to speak. But, um, you know, that was the look of a man during a press conference who's coming face to face with his mortality. And if I was him, I would choose wisely. Give up the game, go do something else, or, you know, do nothing. But put your focus where it belongs. Because trust me, it's not in a game. I don't think anybody really cares about the game at the end of the day. Okay, just wanted to mention that first. Okay, here we go. Education. This is from the Gateway Pundit. This bounced around last week. Uh, Cicely even tossed me this way from, uh, tossed me the story again from New Mexico. And I saw this. I even think I threw it up on Gab last week. But this right here also defines exactly what I warned about a long time ago. That this is what happens when you can't find substitute teachers and you can't find permanent teachers is you end up hiring predators without even knowing it. In particular, if these individuals, again, don't have the credentials, and they may even pass a background check, but they still find their way into a K-12 environment because they are there to actually prey on the minors that exist within those environments. So again, this is from Gateway Pundit, and it's titled, Missouri Middle School Teacher, he was a substitute, facing charges for grooming and raping students found dead in county jail. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the only place that I know of that uh, is the most unsafe for a pedophile outside of, say, a father's house whose child has been assaulted would be a county jail or a prison. County jails and prisons don't like pedophiles. Never have, never will. So he was apparently dead uh, in his jail cell under what they call mysterious circumstances. Substitute teacher Brandon Holbrook, 30 years old, was found unresponsive in his cell at the St. Louis County Jail on Monday. He was facing three counts of statutory rape and six counts of statutory sodomy. 
good riddance to bad rubbish, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, let's see. Blah, blah, blah. It says, the teacher was accused of raping a 14-year-old student at Bernard Middle School in Melville. He had found the girl on social media and began exchanging photos and messages in May. He allegedly raped her at her home on three different occasions and threatened her into keeping quiet. Following his arrest, the school district sent a letter to the families in the district saying that, quote, when a friend of a victim brought concerns to the Melville School District counselor on Monday, September 12th, District administrators immediately filed a report with the Divisions of Children's Services in compliance with Missouri law. District administrators contacted the St. Louis County Police and have provided information and assistance as they've requested it. The employee was made inactive on our substitute roster on September 12th. After his arrest, more alleged victims reportedly came forward. Good Lord. Uh, it says that apparently Holbrook's attorney does not appear to believe that his client's death was a suicide. So, yeah, he was killed. Again, good riddance, as far as I'm concerned. But that right there again proves the point that this is exactly what happens when you open these doors out of desperation. You open the doors of your school because, again, you don't have, you don't have the people to work there. You're looking just for bodies and then individuals just waltz in who are predators because they know that they have their pick. Again, there's no more unsafe environment right now. And the people who are running these environments cannot keep them safe. They just can't. Because again, as you've heard me say, the last thing that's taking place within these environments is education. Lots of other things are taking place, are they not? But it's not education. Okay, here's the next one, and this is also something that I've mentioned before, and it's starting to happen. Unfortunately, this is sort of uh, rather obvious, and almost goes without even saying, to be honest, but I'm going to bring it up anyway, because again, this is, this is something that's going to continue to roll out, and I don't think that we have very far to look as to figure out who's to blame. This comes from Florida State University News. And it's titled, Florida State University Researchers Find Pandemic-Altered Personality Traits of Younger Adults. No kidding. As I said on Gab, this was probably published in the Journal of No Shit. I mean, it's pretty obvious. But as, as I've stated in the past, th these kinds of studies are the ones that have to be done. Regarding, again, the mask wearing, the jab coercion, the social distancing, the walking around with plastic dividers, uh, all of it. The social isolation, the prison-like mentality that they introduced within all of these schools. It was all done on purpose to see what people would tolerate. And unfortunately, what we watched was essentially the entire business tolerate this. We saw every school board member tolerate it for the most part. We saw every administrator within the K-12 districts tolerate it for the most part. And we certainly saw countless teachers tolerate it and enforce it to a level that actually should have cost them their jobs. And in many places, I, I should say, did cost educators and administrators their jobs too. But here's what this says. It says, quote, A research team led by faculty at the Florida State University College of Medicine 
of all places, found the COVID-19 pandemic appeared to cause personality changes, especially in younger adults. The research published in PLOS1 found that the population-wide stressor of the pandemic made younger adults moodier, more prone to stress, less cooperative and trusting, and less restrained and responsible. That, that right there, I think, needs to be defined, and, and I would like to dive into that here for just a minute. That can be a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's a good thing in many cases. If this entire thing has created younger adults who are less trusting, that's a good thing. In particular, when it comes to authority figures, I think that's a good thing, without a doubt. More prone to stress, of course, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but depending on how you look at it, if a person experiences a lot of stressful situations and they learn about it and they come out on the other end stronger as a result, that's a good thing. Again, it says less cooperative and trusting. Well, People shouldn't have cooperated during this time, but look how many people did. And then it says less restrained and responsible. That depends on their definition, the researcher's definition of restrained and responsible. Again, does that mean that they were less likely to go along with the nonsense? I sure hope so. But it continues here and it says, quote, We do not know yet whether these changes are temporary or will be lasting. But if they do persist, they, will, they could have long-term implications, unquote, said Angelina Sutton, a professor in the college's Department of Behavioral Sciences and Social Medicine and the study's lead author. It says, quote, neuroticism and conscientiousness predict mental and physical health as well as relationships and educational and occupational outcomes, and the changes observed in these traits could increase risk of worse outcomes. Again, I could interpret this a couple of different ways. Uh, if, they're, if they're just interpreting this as, well, it just didn't seem like everybody was going along with it, and a lot of people were getting angry. I mean, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. They should have gotten angry. They should get mad. They should be less cooperative. It continues, and it says, The changes in younger adults, study participants younger than 30, show disrupted maturity as exhibited by increased neuroticism and decreased agreeableness and conscientiousness in the later stages of the pandemic. It says, Middle-aged adults between 30 and 64 also showed changes and the oldest group of adults showed no statistically significant changes. Previous research supported the long-standing hypothesis that environmental pleasures have relatively little effect on personality, but this study indicates that a global stress event can affect personality in ways that more localized crisis events, such as hurricanes and earthquakes, generally do not. I gotta tell you, I think you can take this a few different ways. Again, who's, who was more likely to believe all of this? Was it the elderly or was it, was it individuals in their 30s? I think the elderly were more likely to buy into this entire, this entire hoax, don't you? That they call the pandemic as opposed to somebody in their 30s who's been through the grind and been in the grind and, you know, been frustrated and knocked down and beat down from time to time and then looks around and goes, what the hell's the matter with all you people? What's with all these masks? What's going on here? I don't know. I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. 
It continues and it says, quote, researchers used longitudinal assessments of personality from 7,109 people enrolled in an online Understanding America study comparing five-factor model personality traits, neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. The time periods measured were pre-pandemic, May 2014 through February of 2020, early pandemic, March through December of 2020, and later pandemic, 2021 through 2022. The analysis showed relatively few changes between pre-pandemic and early pandemic assessments, with only a small decline in neuroticism. That's funny. (laughs) Unfortunately, there's still plenty of neurotic people around, with or without a pandemic. That's fake. Uh, It continues, it says, but when the pre-pandemic personality was compared to the 2021-22 data, it says there were declines in extroversion, openness, agreeableness, and conscientiousness. The changes were about one-tenth of the standard deviation, which is equivalent to about one decade of normative personality change. It says the research was supported by a grant from the National Institute on Aging, part of the National Institutes of Health, and blah, 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 blah. And that's it. Again, I don't think it's a bad thing. How does a person define agreeableness? Does that mean, again, that that means that you're going along with the sheep, that you're just following the herd right into the slaughter, and oh my gosh, there were more people that were disagreeable. Well, yeah, those are the ones that are alive. It's the disagreeable people that are alive. It's the disagreeable people that are unjabbed. It's the disagreeable people that are more healthy and certainly going to be in the long term, if not the short term. So this is a perfect example of how you can see someone or a group of professors at the Florida, at Florida State University trying to grab a hold of the societal narrative and bend it their way. To again potentially say, well, they didn't go along with the science, quote unquote, so we're going to categorize them potentially as being less cooperative and trusting and less restrained and responsible. Like we're the problem. Like those of us that would categorize ourselves as that would be would be somehow the problem. Nope, far from it. We are far from the problem. However, this particular study does bring in the story that I'm going to mention at the end of this uh, about my dog and the surgical office that I attended to have her spayed. Trust me, there is a connection. Because again, this is something I think that lots of people have experienced. And it has to do with vigilance, and it has to do with manners, it has to do with preparation, and, and walking into an environment expecting certain things, sort of expecting the worst, and then the worst doesn't happen but at least we were prepared for it. I think that's not necessarily a bad place to be, but there's a lot of things I think along the way that we shouldn't forget, which, uh, which I'll mention again toward the end. Okay, here's the next piece of audio, uh, well, first piece of audio rather that I, that I wanna play. This again is audio of a guy at a local school board where I live, and he's talking about a little statistic fact that he caught regarding the local school, because as you've heard me bring up here with regularity, there are going to be school levies that are on the ballot all across the United States because these schools are bleeding money. 
They're bleeding student enrollment. They're they're bleeding school teachers. Uh, they're bleeding morals and ethics. I mean, I'm not sure they ever had them, but they're bleeding all of that, and they think that money is the thing that's going to fix it consistently. Allegedly, in the uh, upcoming levy where I live, they're asking for at least $4 million to be added to the school budget on a year-in, year-out basis. Uh, that's my understanding of it. I could have that wrong, but anywho. Here's the audio of what the guy says. And again, I think this is his first school board meeting. He shows up, he's, he's relatively polite, and he catches them. And he catches them not knowing what they're doing, because again, it's not difficult to catch these people not knowing what they're doing. They're notorious money wasters. And again, they wonder why they have to ask for money through levies, but they don't ever want to blame themselves and their own policies. So give this a listen. Evening, my name is Pete Domenico. I live in Milford Township. Um, I was sent Dr. Thoreau's letter by my wife and told that, you know, we don't pass the levy, that sky's falling and um so i did i did my own research i didn't know anything about schools um some of the information about spending that was just stated i found but the the statistic that stood out to me is um with the last ranking we were 244th in the state only 41 of the schools ranked higher than us spent more um that, that was a shocking number um it doesn't mean it's not necessary i i I don't know how to educate people. Um, I don't know how to run a school. But that's a statistical anomaly that uh, would warrant some, some, some additional information. And when you read about the levy, $4.5 million for forever, I know it doesn't go up, but it doesn't go down. Um, there's no plan on how to use it except for expenses go up. And if we're the highest in the county, and if at our ranking there's only 41 that spend more money than us, um, I think the town deserves a plan. Um, I also think there's an incredible opportunity to not be in the, the kids are all going to fail if we don't spend more money or we can't spend another penny. We need to watch every single dime. There, there's, a, there's some place in the middle that would include plans and best practices if there's 200 districts that do it better than us, whether they're similar, whether they're rural, urban, doesn't matter. There's something to be learned. Um, I, in fact, have put calls into other treasurers to try to get time to find out what they've learned, schools that have improved over the time. So I've put my own spreadsheets together. What have you learned? What have you improved? Your scorecard's gone up and your cost per student has gone down. I, I've... I haven't watched every YouTube video, but I've read most of your correspondence over the last couple of years. I don't see anything like this. The, the, the information's there. You have to go get it. Um, if I find out anything, I'll bring it back. I, I sent a very detailed um, email to Dr. Thoreau. I got a very lackluster at best response. Um, I copied, oh, excuse me. I copied all of you on my response to that response. Um, you have some of my spreadsheets. You have the rankings. Um, like I said, there's 200 districts that if 12 of them gave you suggestions, six might work here. And if, and if we learn that and we applied it to Talawanda, we would get better. Um, maybe we still need a levy. I don't know. Maybe we need a levy. You have 10 seconds. 10 seconds. Well, I, I've said my piece. Um, there has to be a middle ground, and there's a lot to learn, and I don't think we're looking.
Um, and then one last thing to have a meeting, I'm sure you schedule them in advance, but on the day of the homecoming parade is that's poor. That's Thank poor. you very much. Thank you. It was a good talk. It was a good speech. I mean, it was relatively quick to the point. He caught them on being unprofessional. He caught them on not asking questions. He caught them on being fisc fiscally irresponsible. And he caught them on being negligent regarding a homecoming parade and scheduling a school board meeting on the same day as a homecoming parade. Again, I don't think that necessarily matters. Most people, you know, in the town don't attend either the school board meetings nor the homecoming parade. I mean, I'm sure some people do, but whatever. That's not necessarily a concern of mine, although it just shows that the school board members are out to lunch. They could easily reschedule anything they wanted, but they just chose not to. Uh, let's see. 610. There are 610 school districts in the state of Ohio. The school district where I live, as you heard him say, ranks 244th out of 610. So that's not good, to say the least. Uh, middle of the road, you know, mediocre. If mediocre is what you want, then congratulations. And then he said that there were 41 schools that were ranked that ranked higher than us that spent more. Only 41. So again, he, he he's just catching them being fiscally irresponsible. And the part that I enjoyed the most was is he's, he he caught them not asking questions. He's basically saying, why in the hell don't you just ask questions? Why is it that you think you can fix everything in-house without asking questions on the outside, looking at outside school districts that have less money, more students, and are more academically successful? What is it that they're doing that you're not doing? But this is the larger problem. School, school board members not asking questions to other school boards or other education officials in schools that are more successful is, is common. It's a common thing for rather obvious reasons because all it does is shine a giant light on them as being stupid, as them not understanding what it is that they're doing doesn't work and, oh, we can't remove the things that maybe we enjoy even though some people over here who are more successful than, than us say that it doesn't work, we still don't want to remove it. Bad policy is bad policy any way you slice it. Money wasting is money wasting any way you slice it. You've heard me bring up every single one of these diversity, equity, inclusion, social, emotional learning things. Filter and siphon money away where it could just exist in an account and not be touched. But again, this has a lot to do with state law and state policy. And if there's state policy that says that those programs have to exist, then it's the state policy that's making these schools broke also. It's the politicians that are making these schools broke, and they don't know that. They're completely unaware that it's their laws, their policies, their indoctrination that are the cause of this collapse. They may be aware. It's a giant intentional. But the people at the local level seem to have no idea. They're not awake to it, certainly not the school board members themselves, because they love being on these school boards. They love looking as if they are adequate people when holding the position itself essentially defines them as being an inadequate person. But 
I, I, I liked what he said. It was solid. It was straight and to the point. And again, the dig on the superintendent, old Eddie Thoreau, uh, you know, it, it, they caught him being a loser in his emails. And he is. I've read the guy's emails. I've written Substack articles in the past. Again, that four-part series that shows some of his emails. He openly states in, in that email thread from the beginning of this year, when I did an open records request, that he's interested in making the responses to parents remarkably short and sweet in email. He tells all the school board members this. He says, you don't have to respond to parents. I'll respond to them. And he responds to them the same way almost every single time, which is, thank you for your email. We've got your information. We'll certainly consider it. Take care of yourself. I'll move it along to the board members and blah, blah, blah. And that's the end of it. It's no like, hey, you know what? You're right. We need to take a look at this. I'm going to take a closer look. And you know what? If you want to get together and talk, that'd be a good idea. So this guy had to show up, again, having probably never done it before, and give him the what for, you know, as, as plainly as he did. And that's fine. I would simply say to the dad, get out. Get out. If, you're, if your child who attends the school district, if, again, you have a child who attends the school district, can read and write on their own, then they can teach themselves. So just get out of the school district. It's your lack of participation in the school district that will make it collapse. And there's not a levy in sight that's going to fix that. There isn't a levy in sight, ladies and gentlemen, across the United States in the field of education that will fix enrollment. Not one. Levies don't create human beings to fill seats in classrooms. All they do is piss people off. All they do is raise property taxes. That's all they do. So you can't make a ch you can't make humans with money, and you can't make humans to fill school buildings, so that they get all the state funds that they need for the entire year, so that they don't have to use levies. They use levies out of desperation because the system is collapsing, and they're not the only school district that's doing it. This is happening everywhere. So I just wanted to play that. Because again, that's, uh, you know, election day's coming up here. It's coming up next month and it's, it's right around the corner. All right. Here's the next audio I want to play. And this comes from the YouTube podcast titled Teachers Off Duty Podcast. Now, you may recall that there was a rather hilarious and uh, incredibly depressing podcast that existed a while back. Thank God it no longer exists, but it was called Teachers Who Drink. And I played audio of that podcast on this show to give you an idea as to how dumb some of these people can be. Uh, those two gals who had that podcast Again, don't have the podcast anymore, and thank God for it, but they were still school teachers, and I was shocked. I was shocked that two school teachers could have a podcast titled Teachers Who Drink and at the exact same time say the things that they were saying while practically giving away where they live and where they teach. It seems to me like somebody got to them eventually and said, Hey, look, before you're disciplined by the state, you might want to stop having your podcast. And they had their podcast apparently for a year and a half or a year or maybe even two years. I'm not sure. Uh, it was terrible. One one episode would give you a nosebleed, and a second episode would send you to the hospital. It was so stupid. 
I could physically hear my IQ drop when I listened to the two of them talk. My opinion on this Teachers Off-Duty podcast is very similar. These are young, generational individuals who have been teaching, and there's a lot of complaining, and there's some storytelling. It's hosted by a younger gal and a gay dude, uh, and then they have either one or two guests on at a time. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Again, some of them are current teachers, some of them are former teachers, whatever, but it's not, it's not what you're going to hear on this show. I guarantee that. And I, I think that the numbers are very telling also. They have 734,000 subscribers. This particular audio you're going to hear, which is approximately four minutes long, uh, has 27,245 views. And it only has 1,300 likes. And as you know, YouTube has done away with their dislike count. But you can still take a guess as to who's disliking it and how many people are disliking it because of that number ratio that I, that I just brought up. Uh, and then, of course, there's a giant comment section and, and whatever else. I want to play this four-minute clip, and I want to bounce in and out and kind of break down what this person says. The person doing the majority of the talking seems to be a guest on the show. Uh, he's gay. That's my two cents on that. Maybe, maybe not. He might not be, but I don't know. Seems like it. And, uh, and yeah, and, and he, and he, I think is English. He seems to have an English accent, but he's going to describe again what he seems to think about why teachers are barely hanging on, which the title of this video is kids are socially behind and teachers are barely hanging on. I don't think he hits the nail on the head with anything. And the problem that I have, too, is that this is really shining a giant light on teacher education and their failure. And the child abuse that, of course, has existed throughout the last, well, forever in the field of education, but certainly within the last two years. So I'm going to start playing this. I'm going to bounce in and out. Trust me, it's not going to be long before you hear my voice again because. This guy's a piece of work. So here's that audio right now. Every single time I speak to like teachers, and even in my own experience, which is why I left this year, is because of the fact that the last few years have been rough, but this year's been worse because there's not been those extra supports. And right. it's felt like, I feel like there's not enough emphasis on just how delayed socially absolutely. these students are. Yeah, because absolutely. I was teaching like freshmen that, came to me as if they were like sixth graders, absolutely. which is right, not my exactly. speciality. Absolutely. And it's like they forget to do the like straightforward basic activities mm -hmm. that they used to do. And there's no longer that kind of like I used to struggle because my main reason I wanted to be a teacher was to connect with my students. But I always felt like I never had the same connection as I did pre-pandemic. Right. It was yes. always Agreed. Like, because they'd had so much time isolated by themselves. And as a teacher, like the whole time, like even though you had breaks, summer, everything, the whole time you're thinking, how do I adapt my curriculum? Because we yeah. can go online at any moment. And it just felt like it was exhausting beyond belief. And there was no like... The fact that teachers said out of nowhere, we are willing to do hybrid, go online, everything. And there wasn't really any thanks for it. It was just no. like, you're expected to do it. And Okay. Deep breath. Here we go. First of all, and trust me, there's more to play. Because if I have to listen to this, you have to listen to it too. <laughs> 
let's just lock arms and walk through this nightmare together. First of all, if you get into teaching or a person got into teaching to connect with students, you got into it for the wrong reasons. The pedophile rapist substitute teacher that I mentioned at the beginning got into being a substitute teacher to connect with students, quote unquote. And look where that got him. Uh, I understand there's different levels of connection, but my point is, is that that's not why a person should be a teacher, in my opinion. That's not the point. The point should be to teach the future members of society the truth about subjects, in particular a subject matter or a couple, and that's about it. That's the responsibility. When he mentioned the word, we didn't receive extra supports during the pandemic, quote unquote, I could take a guess and say that this is an example of a person who went along with all of it. They went along with the mask wearing, the distancing, the isolation. They played the game. But you're hearing that he's not blaming himself. He's not even blaming necessarily those specific moves on even administration. He's blaming, well, we didn't have the support. This also is another reason to never get into the business, and it's not a reason that I got into the business. I didn't get into the business of education when I was in it because I wanted people to hold my hand and pat me on the back and tell me I'm doing a good job and then help me along the way every step. I didn't need their help. The only help I ever needed as a school teacher was an administrator to follow through on discipline and then communicate that discipline to the parent of the child. That was about it. I didn't ask them for curricular help. I didn't ask them for supply help. I didn't ask them for more money. I didn't ask for any of that. I didn't ask, again, for a pat on the back or for somebody to tell me that we're all in this together and everything's going to be okay. That was never the point. But this guy, again, at the foundational level, got into it for the wrong reason, which means his entire playbook, his whole three-ring binder of expectations, so to speak, is off-base. It's completely off-base. So I'm going to keep playing it. And he continues, and here we go. It really yeah. felt like teachers for the first time saw all of these other things. That's why so many teachers are going to, into ed tech. Yeah. Because it's like they have seen that they're capable of adapting and doing mm -hmm. so much stuff. Yes. And I think it's just really powerful to just know, like, if you are a teacher and you're struggling, like, it's so easy to think, I'm an educator, I can't do anything apart from this. This is what I was built to do. As an educator, the resilience you have and the determination mm -hmm. you have to succeed Absolutely. and that empathy, you will succeed in whatever yes. you put your mind to. You really will. And I think that's the main thing. It's like, I think rather than being like, oh, you're a teacher and you feel like you can't do this, it should be more like, well, what skills do you like? What do you like about teaching? And looking into that. And it's like, yes, by all means, try your best to stay into it. If this is what you want to do, then you dedicate yourself to doing it. But also don't feel like you're pressurized into doing it because 
it's the same mentality of like families where the mum and dad stay together for the kid. We've got to stay together for the kid. Right. And I think to this day, when that I was a great analogy. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, when I was a child and my parents split, I was devastated. I was like, oh my gosh, my parents are split. Now as an adult, I look at my parents and I'm like, thank God they split. Right. <laughs> I would have exactly. been a hot mess because that that would have just been a it's toxic environment. It's not a environment. healthy environment for and the kid. I remember in my like last few days where I had so much going on and I was like, I can't balance this. I didn't care. I reached a point where I was like, I don't care about reporting this. Every time I got an email about this student's done this, this student's done that, you've not emailed this parent, this child's not done any assignments. I just thought, I don't care. Right now, I wake up and I'm depressed as anything. I'm yeah. looking, I feel like a cloud is above my head mm-hmm. and no one checks in on me. Right. And- okay. Okay. I'm starting to have a stroke now. First of all, when you say the words like and you know, with that level of repetition, in fact, I don't think I say those words ever. I don't start off a sentence with like or end it with like or say, you know, like, you know. This is not a, this is not a verbal habit I've, I, I've ever had. This, however, is probably one of the reasons why students aren't succeeding verbally, let alone in the subject of English, is because they have teachers like this, who ironically enough in his case, is an English man and can't speak English. So wrap your arms around that one or head around that one. I, I, it's awful. Um... Yeah, students are falling behind and have always fell behind because of the lack of knowledge of their educator. It's not necessarily just what goes on in the home. Yes, we we all know that that plays a giant role. But if your teacher can't speak English, that's kind of a problem. If your teacher can't engage in complete sentences and talks like they're a teenage girl, that's a bit of a problem. I've had students who are teenage girls in the past, a long time ago, and they speak better than he speaks. I've had male students who speak English better than he speaks. That matters. That's a big deal. Don't know what subject the guy taught or does teach or whatever, but it's embarrassing, I think. It's, it's just embarrassing. Um, he also mentioned at the end there that no one checks on, in on him to see how he's doing. That's no one's job. No one has a job to show up and check in on how you're doing. And then, of course, he mentioned that he would get emails and not answer them, and he just didn't care. And then, of course, how casually he brought up being depressed. I don't know how serious that is, because, again, a lot of people say they're depressed, and they have no idea what depression actually is. But uh, how about just doing your job? How about just answering the emails and communicating effectively with the people around you and then stop doing your job and, you know, go home? But this is, this is part of the problem. I fully understand that there are endless issues that exist within the business, which is why it's collapsing. There's failure in training. There's too much training, uh, too much useful, useless training, rather. Much of it is useless. In fact, the majority of it, I would say, is useless. And I, and I proved that even with my own dissertation research. I, I just clearly showed that the violence prevention and conflict resolution training was actually making people engage in more conflict 
and uh, more inner turmoil with anger and so on and so forth and a lack of connection to reality than, say, what the training was actually doing because the training wasn't addressing anything that was really going on within the school building. That's not unique to just one building. That's across the board. So that's my take on this guy. There's more. Want to listen to it? Oh, let's. Here we go. I'm, and like, it's that mentality of like, if your cup is so empty, yep. how are you supposed to help other yeah. people? Well, and, and that's I think- the thing. I, I hate that, you know, everyone's always about, well, like everyone preaches, oh, self-care, make sure you yeah. take care of yourself. But you don't give us the resources nope. or the time to nope. take care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then we just keep piling stuff on people's plates, expecting them to do more yeah. with less. Mm-hmm. And it's like. How am I supposed to how am I supposed to prepare these kids for the next school year when they're still 3 years behind me? Right. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you know, I'm I'm not talking about my own district because I'm blessed with where I, yeah. I teach. I really like where I teach. But like I know there are people out there that have like a $0 budget mm-hmm. that they have to teach all of their subjects with. Um I saw the episode we were talking about um, the cost of, like, setting up a classroom and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the other teachers, I didn't even think of this, and I told them, I'm like, I stand corrected. Like, they're like, high school science. They're like, you know how much stuff I have to buy for right. a science experience? Yeah. I'm like, I we do don't not get a budget that. at all. I'm like, that is insane. On top of that, these kids, like you said, they're socially, they're so behind. Yeah. And, like, it's, it's almost like they are... Um, they're immature in their yeah. own behaviors mm-hmm. with each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to interact with other kids. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, that's a huge, huge deficit. And it's hard when, you know, you feel the stress as an educator of like, not only do I have to get them to pass this test, but I also have to get them to, you know, be a functioning human being right. in society. And it, it, that is a huge weight yeah. to sit on your shoulder. Yikes. Ladies and gentlemen, you need not look any further as to why the entire system is collapsing, I think, than the very people who are on this show. It pretty much says it all, does it not? The voice you heard there, the female voice, she's one of the hosts of the show. You saw her again, or heard her rather, bring up cost and complaining about money and the cost of things. We have a science class, but we don't have a budget. That's next to impossible. That's next to impossible that that would be the case. If there are particular things that you have to do based on state standards, you would have a district budget that would cover that cost. There are, of course, other things that you could do in place, but that would require thinking in order to replace a particular activity. Again, this is what curriculum directors are for. They're responsible for letting you know what the budget is and then providing you the paperwork in order to fill it out so that you can tell the district what you need in advance so that you have it on time and blah, blah, blah. All of that exists. Um, Because if it didn't, you you have a giant state complaint that would have to be made and, you know, a person could clearly make that. Um... The business of costing, you know, spending money to set up a classroom again seems a bit outrageous to me. Uh, the amount of money that, that teachers complain about not having because they don't have enough mobiles hanging from the ceilings like the children or toddlers who need to, you know, swat their hands at things or stare at things on the walls or whatever. All of that is a giant con game. You know, the mo- more posters you have in your classroom, uh, the more engage your students will be. All of that is is a giant lie. None of that is true. You want the focus to be on you as an educator, not the shiny things hanging on the walls. 
I don't care what age you are. Again, there's a big difference between walking into an elementary school classroom and walking into a high school classroom. If you have a high school teacher that's wh- whose walls are covered with all kinds of nonsense, that, that person has a problem. They have an elementary school mentality that they cannot shake and cannot get rid of. The mentality that elementary school teachers, again, typically have, which you know involves decorating their rooms to the absolute brim with all kinds of randomized things and posters and whatever. It's always been a giant lie. It's always been a giant distraction. Again, the student's focus is supposed to be on the educator and the words coming out of the mouth of the educator, um, rather than noticing that Johnny or Sally is paying attention to a poster you have on the wall and then saying that they have ADHD and then pumping them full of drugs. So, yeah, the, the entire thing is backwards is my point, which is why it's failing. It's failing. You can't have this many contradicting views on a singular line of work and, and expect it to succeed, let alone, again, having all of these individuals work within this profession who, who differ on so many things and expect it to succeed. It just won't. It won't. So again, Teachers Off-Duty podcast, they have a lot of those YouTube short videos that they put out of just little clips of them telling ridiculous stories, I guess. I don't know. It's uh, it's a little, uh, oh, what's the word or what's the phrase? It's a little simple, I'll just say. It's a little simple. I don't think it's very informative. They, they aren't connecting the dots. They aren't asking bigger questions, and they're not pulling in the larger picture of things. Not to mention, these were individuals that participated in the abuse of children if they had them wear masks, so on and so forth. They're, they're guilty. They're, they're just as guilty as anybody who, who thought that it was a good policy to do that in the first place, and they went along with it. So I blame them too. And then, of course, the overall theme, I think, of, of that audio clip, which is when students are at home, they don't learn anything, and parents can't teach them quite like we can. So they need to be in the classroom all of the time, or else they're not going to learn anything. It's absurd. That continues to be completely misguided, and again, if that's a foundational way in which somebody thinks about the profession, then the profession is going to fail, and well, it's failing because that's the foundational approach that many of them take. No one knows better than the teacher. Well, they couldn't be more wrong than that. Okay, story time now. I think that a lot of people have experienced this, over the, certainly over the last couple of years, if not even longer than that. But certainly in the last couple of years, because what we've had to see from a societal standpoint, and I wanted to mention this because I think it really highlights sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly regarding a number of different things, in particular when it comes to human behavior, though, and the way that we interact with with a number of people. And of course, the, the individuality that we have to take and the vigilance that we have to have during this time. So I'll start it off by saying this. back in. March, my uh, the puppy that I currently have was born, and I got it in May, at the beginning of May, which happens to be her name. Rather simple, I think, and uh, not a tough process on picking a name. Anywho, during this time, I, I immediately recognized that I didn't want her to have any shots of any kind, although I knew that she had received two shots 
that uh, that that are sort of a multi-shot shot, sort so to speak, of, of of different kinds of things, an antiviral, quote unquote, you know, whatever. Um, it, it wouldn't have been my choice, but again, this was this was the dog, and and this was the litter that that existed, and this was the approach that the person took, even though the person who sold me the dog was not the person or was not uh, was not a fan of shots, is what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, they lived on a farm and had lots of room for the dogs to run and build their immune systems and so on and so forth. So all of that happened. And then I brought the dog home and I thought to myself, well, now it's time to start doing some digging as to, again, what are the, what are some healthier foods to give it? Uh, you know, what can I do for this dog to make sure that it's not going to end up handicapped in some way, in particular regarding shots? And then, of course, when it comes time to spay her and have her spayed, are, are these surgeons or vet doctors, so to speak, are, are they going to allow that to take place if the dog has received or not received particular shots? And then, of course, my mind starts rolling about everything that's taken place over the last couple of years. And I'm thinking to myself a variety of things, which is, how much of a, of a fight am I going to have to put up on this? Because when it comes to the actual spaying of the dog and dropping it off at a vet's office or a surgeon's office, of course, to have the operation and whatever, which is a pr standard procedure for the most part, as far as I can tell, um, what am I going to have to do? What am I going to have to say? How prepared am I going to have to be? And I'm certainly going to have to be prepared to just walk out. If these individuals just say, well, we're not going to touch the dog unless it has its rabies shot, and we're not going to touch the dog unless, you know, this, that, or the other. So I got online, and the first thing I did was I looked up a holistic veterinarian, and I found one about 30 minutes away from where I live, and she's an amazing human being, uh, just an excellent, excellent doctor, excellent vet, and completely based uh, very, very thoughtful, very thorough. Again, holistic is their is their in, in, entire approach, and it's it's worked out very, very well. Through talking, of course, we we came to the realization that both of us are anti jab across the board for pretty much dogs and humans, and we've talked about the COVID jabs and all of that, and it's it's been excellent. Just had excellent conversations with this person, learned an awful lot as well. We also came to the agreement that I knew that I would have to have some kind of a letter, potentially, when it came time to spay my dog, to, to basically hand the receptionist or hand the surgeon themselves, the doctor, and basically say, hey, look, I don't want uh, my dog to have any shots, because what my vet told me, and we're talking about two separate people here, there's, there's the vet for my dog and then where the dog got spayed, completely separate people. In fact, they're in completely separate states because I live very close to the Indiana border, which is where she got her shots. So we agreed that having a letter would be a good idea because you don't know how these doctors are going to react. You don't know how seriously they're going to take things. I mean, are they going to put a mask on the dog? You know, some people are just nuts. And we've seen that, of course, transpire over the last couple of years. Not to mention the website in Indiana for this, for this doctor's office where they perform these surgeries, which is, I don't think it's a kennel, but it's just where they perform surgeries and things of that nature. Do checkups, medicine, the whole thing. Uh, it says on their website that you have to wear a mask when you come in. So I see that even now on their website, 
And I'm saying to myself, well, that's not happening. So I'm in my head, I'm saying, well, this is a fight that I'm going to have and let's do it. Let's, let's go to war on this. I don't have a problem with that. And I'm prepared to walk out and find someone else. But I'm going to remind these people that they're making a huge mistake if, in fact, they force either a mask on me or force shots on my dog. So my dog's vet writes up an awesome letter and basically says she doesn't need any shots. She shouldn't have any shots. Uh, she's got this going on, that going on. There's no need for her to have shots. So the time comes for the spaying, which again is in Indiana, not in Ohio, where I live. So I drive about again 20 minutes, 30 minutes away to go uh, to, to take her to go get spayed. I walk in, and there's only one person wearing a mask, and it's one of the one of the customers who's there to make an appointment for their dog. No one else is wearing a mask. Neither receptionist is wearing a mask, the whole thing. I've got my letter in my pocket. My dog's next to me. Everything is fine. And I'm looking around and I'm saying to myself, okay, so far, so good. You know, my expectations for how bad things could be were was sky high. I'm saying, you know, I'm going to get yelled at as soon as I hit the door. And then that's when, that's when the fight's going to break out, so to speak. Um, not physical fight, but you get what I'm saying. And then I sit down with the dog, and then I'm looking around and whatever, and I'm starting to notice a couple of signs. And you could tell that they, they did play the game uh, either six months ago, a year ago, or two years ago, because they had a sign in there that you know said, social distance matters. And it was like a dog and a cat staying six feet apart, whatever. And I was like, oh, okay, well, unless it's a play on words and you know, don't get your dogs mixed up with one another because you don't want one of them to get hurt and X, Y, Z. And then I thought, you still say on your website that you want people to wear masks when they come in, but no one in here is wearing masks is in masks uh, on their face except for that one old weirdo who's standing over there sort of by himself. So, so again, so far so good. Everything seems 100% fine, but like I said, my expectations for how bad a confrontation could be were, were sky high. Then it was my turn, and I walked up and I said, uh... I'm here to drop my dog off for their spaying. She said, okay, no problem. What's your name? I gave her my name. And uh, she wrote up the paperwork. She handed me the piece of paper and she said, okay, I'll take your dog. And I said, okay, I just want to make sure that she's not going to receive any shots. She's not to have any shots. Here's a note from, from her vet. No shots. And she looks at me and she smiles. She says, no problem. And just kind of shrugs her shoulders like, okay, no problem. Again, my expectations for what was going to be said to me were, were awful. But it turned out that it was very calm and everything was 100% fine. And then I walked out. And again, no confrontation whatsoever. Nothing. It was great. Excellent service. Excellent people. It was as if, again, everybody had their heads on straight about all of this. It was great. It was not, you know... We're not going to touch her if she doesn't have a rabies shot, which she doesn't and isn't going to, uh, along with any other shot ever again. But the point is, is that it worked out better than I thought. I went to pick her up then, and again, everything was was equally as peaceful as when I walked away. And uh, you know, when I dropped her off, and I thought, and again, it was very just nonchalant. Everything went fine. Here's a piece of paper. Walk her on a leash for a week. Don't let her lick the wound. And, and that's about it. Do you have any questions? And I went, uh, no, thanks. And they were like, okay, have a great day. Bye. And then that was it. 
And I walked out and that was it. It was very no nonsense, very professional, very straightforward, wasting no time and no confrontation. The reason I'm mentioning this story is that I think that somewhere along the way, me myself in particular, uh, given the social confrontations that I've had with people over the last two years, either in grocery stores or out in public or whatever, complete strangers coming up to you and asking you why you're not wearing a mask and then yelling at you to put on a mask and all of this nonsense. I think somewhere along the way, myself included, we've forgotten that there are people out there who just still have manners. And there are people that are still professionals. And there are people that care about human beings and animals and, and what they're doing and how they're portrayed among the public. And that, uh, you know, the simplest policy is usually the best policy. The, the common sense policy is usually the best policy. And I just wanted to remind people that these people are out there. They do exist. There are still good people who are out there. Again, I'm certain that these people played the mass game. It was on their website they had to have, which is, which is a shame and, and too bad. And it's quite possible that they kicked people out of their, of their you know, animal hospital uh, as a result of people not wanting to wear a mask when they entered. It's quite possible that that occurred, but that wasn't the experience that I had in this moment in time. Had I had done it earlier or had the dog earlier, yeah, there, there might have been a confrontation, but there wasn't. The point is, is that in my head, I anticipate a confrontation. And I think that's what these last two years have basically done to a great deal of us. We were not confrontational people to necessarily, you know, uh, with, with any regularity, I would say. We certainly aren't. You know, we'll step in if somebody's being mistreated. I've never had a problem doing that in a public setting. But uh, we just expect confrontation. But being vigilant, I think, is also the main message. I mean, I walked in prepared with everything. Again, I knew what I was going to say. I had the letter. I was prepared to walk out, the whole thing. And I was met with polite behavior and professionalism, which is fantastic. So I'm reminding myself this and trying to remind myself this. Now, of course, as soon as I let my guard down, somebody's going to say something stupid to me. But it just, I think, reminds me of the importance of being vigilant and taking into consideration all aspects of a situation as much as humanly possible, not driving yourself crazy over it, but taking into consideration numerous scenarios and then being prepared again to just walk away if things don't work out a particular way in the face of common sense. You bring common sense to the table and then you're met with a person who has no common sense. Well, walk away. Because you're not going to convince the person who has no common sense to all of the sudden obtain it somehow. I don't think that's going to work. So I think it's a, I don't know. That's basically the end of the story. I just think that it's interesting that over the last couple of years, this is what, this is how people have been treated and this is how people have changed. And it ties right back into that Florida State research paper that I brought up earlier. That it's created individuals that are less agreeable, that it's created less, you know, individuals that are less likely to just go along and be cooperative, so to speak. And the answer is yes. Because if I was met with all of that medical tyranny of, well, we're not going to touch your dog unless this, that, or the other, and you're not wearing a mask, and 
you know, whatever else. I was prepared to not be agreeable. I was prepared to not be conscientious regarding what they wanted and just say, to hell with it, I'm leaving. That's why I think that Florida State study is interesting, but perhaps not what the professors had in mind. That again, it's it's people like us that are going to survive in the future. It's people like us that are taking situations from a holistic standpoint and a whole view standpoint as to what could happen in situations and being vigilant about what could happen and then preparing for what we're going to do next. I think that's important. So I'm done rambling. Uh, I just, I'm curious as to whether or not you've experienced that too. You know, you walk into a situation, you expect the interaction to be a negative one, and then you're, you're pleasantly surprised that it's not, and that the person actually has some empathy and some common sense and is straightforward and rather nonchalant about the entire situation. So there you go. I walked in expecting to bring the situation to a 10, and I was met with a 1, which was great. So total professionals, in fact, it worked out for them in the long run too, because I mentioned my situation to my dog's vet who wrote the letter, and she said, this is incredible. She said, I'm, I'm happy that this place didn't put up a fight, that they, were, that they were polite, professional, and the operation was very cheap. It was like 130 some odd bucks is all to have her spayed. And she even said, that's remarkably cheap. Uh, the, the places where I send my clients, she said, are, are more expensive. So she said she was going to s- spread the word as to where this place is and what the cost is and tell her clients about it and say you should consider going here because they don't require shots and it's a very simple process and there you go. So professionalism and common sense certainly go a long way. Not saying they you know, they had it the entire time over the course of the two years. I I don't know that for a fact, but my experience with them was great. And there's nothing wrong with being vigilant, I think is, is the overall point. But it's certainly, again, as I've rambled on enough here already, it's certainly changed our behavior and our outlook on our fellow human beings and, and the way that we have to prepare ourselves for when we're around them, because you just don't know. But you got to be prepared for as many situations as you possibly can. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Two years in, let's keep it going. I hope you're learning something. Uh, even, again, if you're just walking away with one thing, mission accomplished. I'll catch you on Friday. Take care. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.